It's time to rock your midlife with Dr. Ellen Albertson. Are you ready to get real, break through, and learn how to make your midlife the best time of your life? Take on those life challenges and turn them into opportunities? Let's rock. Here's Dr. Ellen. Hey, everyone. Dr. Ellen here, the Midlife Whisperer. Welcome. I am thrilled that you are joining us today. We have a great show that is really going to support your midlife health. Let's face it. We midlife women, the health issue is a real struggle. Finding time for self-care, learning how we can eat right, deal with expanding waistlines, and really give ourselves the self-care that we need and we deserve. And this show is really going to focus on some super important issues that I know are going to be life-changing for you. We're going to be talking about diet culture and what you can do to support yourself. We're going to talk about polycystic ovary syndrome, which is an issue that many midlife women face. And we're also going to talk about how you can protect your heart. So first, I have a question for you. Have you ever been on a diet? Well, you're not alone. 45 million Americans go on at least one diet every single year, and it makes the weight loss industry worth billions of dollars. And, you know, I used to be one of those people. I dieted in my 20s and 30s and 40s, and I was actually part of the diet industry. And I actually had a eating disorder before people even knew what eating disorders were. And I remember my first diet, I was in college. And at the time I was about 105 pounds and I'm 5'5". So weight loss was not something that I needed at all. But one of my roommates was going on this crazy diet called the Beverly Hills diet. And I thought, well, I'll support her and this will be fun. So we went on this crazy diet where we had to eat nothing but fruit in the morning. And then you either got to eat carbohydrates or protein and not eat them together. It was a crazy diet. And basically for years, I went on diet after diet. And then in my 20s, I actually became a registered dietitian because I thought, well, if I know everything there is to know about food and nutrition, I won't be plagued by this sort of obsession with my weight and counting calories and food. And of course, it backfired. It only made things worse as I supported other people, tried to help them lose weight and kept focusing on my body. It got worse. And in my um, 30s, I was a celebrity chef. And so then I was plagued with having these really big, elaborate meals and then feeling incredibly guilty. And so moving between overeating and restricting and going back and forth on yo-yo diets and then in my 40s, I became a personal fitness trainer. And that was kind of like being a alcoholic working in a liquor store. I was working out four to six hours a day with all of my clients. And no matter what we did, no matter how much weight we lost, no matter how we had abs of six pack or an eight pack, we never felt good about ourselves. We hated our bodies. And there was this idea that well, when my body is perfect, then I'll feel good about myself. Then I'll love myself. And it absolutely didn't work because what happens is when you beat your body up, hoping that that will motivate you to lose some weight, have the perfect body, you bring all of that self-loathing into your present, into your future. And that's what keeps showing up. But then something amazing happened in my fifties, two things actually. 
I was going back to school to get my PhD in psychology because I wanted to be a smarter version of Jillian Michaels, that personal fitness trainer who's known for the uh, torture that she caused her, uh, the contestants in it on The Biggest Loser. But I wanted to help everybody get skinny. And I thought, well, if I've got the psychological tools, I can do it. But the amazing thing that happened when I was in grad school is I realized, first of all, that the media is playing mind games with us, particularly women. The media wants you to feel bad about yourself and bad about your body. So they have created this thin ideal, which basically uh, presents us with this idea that in order to be beautiful, acceptable, we have to be thin and we have to be young. And then they show us pictures of thin young women and we feel bad about ourselves. And then we run and buy their products and services, hoping that we will feel better. So I realized that the media plays a huge role and this is a huge industry. And that was an eye opener for me. And the second thing that happened is I really wanted to help women with negative body image because you know when women have negative body images this is why we diet all the time. And so I was looking for an intervention and I was fortunate enough to find self-compassion. So I began studying self-compassion myself and that tremendously changed my relationship with myself as I learned to treat myself the way you would a good friend and started to practice being kind to myself. Things really started to shift for me. And then my research showed that practicing self-compassion for only about an hour a week reduced body shame, reduce body dissatisfaction, reduce self-worth um, based on appearance and improved body appreciation. So I really did a 180 at this point and started with my clients instead of saying, okay, when you lose the weight, when you have the perfect body, then you'll feel good about yourself. Now what I do with my clients is we just forget about the weight, we forget about dieting. And instead we focus on learning to love yourself right now. And everything changes. You start taking care of yourself. You start moving your body because it feels good because you want to be healthy and things really start to shift and change. And so I'd like you for a moment, imagine how the world would look and how your life would look if there were no eating disorders, if there was no dieting and everybody, regardless of their size, their age, their gender orientation, their race felt good about their bodies, where everyone saw that, you know, your body is just 32 trillion cells trying to keep you alive. How productive would we be? What would we do if we took all that time that we focus on dieting and focus on focus that instead on things that really mattered to us? Well, our next guest holds this vision. She is incredibly amazing. Her name is Julie Duffy Dillon, and she's an incredible story. After sobbing in her boss's office 15 years ago, uh, she decided that she had just taught her last diet. Once she saw the anti-fat bias, she couldn't unsee it anymore. And now Julie helps people with PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome, confidently tackle health concerns, moving forward without shame and blame. She teaches them how to burn their PCOS diet books while bringing clarity into their relationship with food and body. Julie wants to empower everyone to grab their crown because they are king and queen of their own castles. I love that. Welcome to the show, Julian. I'm so delighted to have you here, and I so appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ellen. I'm so excited to chat with you and thank you for asking me to be on your show. 
Oh, my pleasure. So we talked, a little, I, I shared a little bit about how you became a, you undieted yourself, but how did you actually become an anti-diet dietitian? So I had a job where I was helping people for the first time with uh, recovering from eating disorders. And like you, I was a dietitian first, and then I went back to school to become a better, more effective, efficient dietitian by getting a master's in counseling. I stopped at master's though. I didn't get the PhD. And, um, with that, I was really hoping to help people lose weight finally, and to help people also love themselves. And in my first job, I was able to work with people to, um, help people lose weight. And it also included a, a spot where they needed someone to help people with eating disorders. And this is the first time I started working with people with eating disorders. And what I noticed was like, oh, these clients that I'm working with who are here because they want to lose weight, they're saying a lot of the same things that my clients with eating disorders are saying about feeling so like thinking about food all the time, feeling so ashamed about their body and their relationship with food and trying so hard just to do it perfectly. But uh, there was one group of people that people were pushing to work harder. <laughs> and then another group of people that were given kind of like, hey, let me help you get out and let me help you to um, stop fighting your body. And it didn't take long. It was really just a few years as a dietitian until I was like, wait a second, this cannot be okay. Like, why is one group of people getting this kind of um, access to healing, but another group not? And it really came down to because people were in higher weight bodies and our world just doesn't seem to um, want to provide that same kind of way of healing. And I had to really examine some of my own uh, beliefs about bodies and my own training as a dietitian. Um, and that's where I was like, I, once I connected all those dots, I was like, I can't do this anymore. I cannot help people lose weight and help people recover from eating disorders. Like everyone needs to have access to healing. Everyone needs that. Yeah. And it is really crazy. I know as my dietetic training, I became a dietitian 30 years ago in 1993. And mm -hmm. there was this idea that like everybody can and should be skinny. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Like if yeah. you don't, you know, if you're not thin, if you don't have a certain BMI, then it's your fault. And like, you have an issue and it's kind of like, mm -hmm. like, would we tell a great Dane that they need to diet down to be a chihuahua? Exactly. Yeah. I graduated in 1998. So I'm just, I, just a few years behind you. And yes, they were saying the same thing in the late nineties as they were in the middle nineties. And you know, the thing that was really interesting to me is I would have clients in lower weight bodies doing the same thing as my clients in higher weight bodies, like calories in calories out exercise and things like that. And it really highlighted that weight loss is not a behavior. Some people's bodies will change with these behaviors and some people will not. And, but everyone's suffering. Everyone's suffering in the same way, feeling the same shame. And that's but not okay. Yeah. Not only is that okay. And I just want to repeat what you said. Some people will bodies will change and some will not. So if you are listening, mm -hmm. if you're a midlife woman and you're like, I'm going on this cockamamie 12, 1600 <laughs> calorie keto, whatever it is, and you're not losing weight. It's not your fault. It's no, the diet no. industry's fault. Your body doesn't want you to lose weight because in your, your body's mind or your body sees that you are in a famine situation. This is what happens when you go on a diet. Not only do they not work 
And over time, they predict weight gain, not weight loss. But your stress, your perceived stress goes up and your cortisol levels go up because your body thinks that you are in danger. So it ratchets down your metabolism. All you can think about is food, which if you are trying to eat right and maybe, you know, change your body size, you don't want to be hungry all the time. So dieting is like the worst thing that you can do for your body. And certainly if you're feeling like, yeah, I'd like to shed a couple of pounds, it's the absolute worst thing to do in terms of, of changing your body size. If you feel like that's something that is you wanting to do. Exactly. I think for a lot of people, they think, well, if I'm not able to lose weight by eliminating this food group or calorie counting or whatever, then that means that I'm a failure. I'm not trying hard enough. When in reality, what we know is that like, your body is just being a successful human. This is how bodies are wired to survive. Like that's how we've evolved to be able to survive famines is through uh, our, our metabolism changing to help us survive on less, the more we're experiencing less and less, less food intake. So um, yeah, it's more the rule than the exception. And dieting has a lot of negative health consequences too. And mm -hmm. you address this, you have a wonderful podcast called the find your food voice podcast. If you haven't listened to it, I highly encourage you to check it out, but what are some of the negative physiological uh, ramifications of yo-yo dieting? There are so many individual and then also community kind of based um, consequences from dieting. But for the individual, something that researchers have been able to find is that the more we diet, so if you're going on and off a diet or you're chronically dieting or just not eating enough for whatever reason, that is connected to inflammation, higher insulin levels, higher blood pressure. You're more likely to be depressed. And, um, you know, the, the very things that also, I, I forgot about this, um, more likely to have higher triglycerides and high cholesterol as well. And so the very diseases and health concerns that many of us are um, concerned about and makes us seek out dieting, like dieting actually may be making that happen. And so somehow along the way, you know, as dietitians, we've really like sent this message that dieting is this healthy behavior, but really our research is showing us that it's not. And initially these like short-term diets that research that we have, it shows some benefit, but when we look actually like the human like lifespan, the more you diet, the sicker you're going to be, the more it's going to predict disease um, and things like higher inflammation and insulin. And, you know, you mentioned specializing in PCOS, you know, that, those are concerns that are really big for people living with PCOS. Insulin and inflammation are the two big things that cause a lot of the symptoms. And, um, you know, even if you don't have PCOS, maybe you have diabetes or a family history of diabetes or high blood pressure, these um, diets can really make that worse as well. So I think it's really important to keep that in mind. You know, it's looking at that bigger picture and what research has been able to show um, how diets really do get in the way of promoting health. Yeah. And I think it's interesting when you talk about this diet culture, I know when I, clients I've worked with myself, I would ignore big issues in my life. And I have a lot of clients, they are like, you know, ignoring that they're not happy with their marriage. They're not happy with, you know, they don't have a lot of joy. They don't have passion. Maybe they don't like the careers, but it feels like dieting is something, it has a specificity to it, right? That's the way I used to be. Like I used to have issues in my life and everything would get dumped in this bucket called, I feel fat. So I'd have a, you know, a fight with my ex-husband and I'd be like, I feel fat. I wouldn't be satisfied with my career. And it'd be like, I feel fat. It was like this, this thing that we feel like we have some level of control over dieting and we're ignoring 
what's really, you know, the, the issues that we're truly having in our lives. It really is, it's insane. It's like what Einstein said is insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. But we think, or we, or we put things on hold, like I will, you know, travel or change my career or change my relationship once I lose the weight. So weight becomes this thing that's kind of in our way of what we truly want. Do you find that with your clients that, you know, they're oh, yeah. used to putting all their issues in this bucket called I'm fat, I need to lose weight. That's really my issue. And that's not the issue at all. Yeah, I think, especially um, in midlife, like we want to continue to be seen and heard and valued and supported. And it's really obvious that people in higher weight bodies are not valued the same as people in the like young, thin kind of ideal. And that uh, weight is considered to be this thing falsely, but it's considered this thing that we can manipulate and we can make ourselves smaller. And so, yeah, if someone wants to be continue to be seen and heard, of course, they're going to want to try to continue to have like access to power. And so it seems like an easy kind of win, but in reality, it's distracting because it's really keeping us from probably getting the support we need. You know, it keeps us from um, addressing the the things that are causing the pain, and um, it's it really dieting to me is like super seduct- seductive. It's a fantasy, and very very distracting. Um, and I think that's it's just a shame that di- the diet industry has gotten away with this for so long. But you know, with Dr. Ellen and I pointing it out, hopefully it will not anymore. <laughs> well, hopefully if you're listening and it, you know, if you are, it's, it is a little hard to wean yourself off of it. And I have mm-hmm. to say there are skilled nutritionists, coaches, myself included, who can really help you to rehab. So let's talk about, about that. And I also want to talk a little bit about PCOS, but first let's talk about, you know, part of this is how do you rehab? How do you rediscover your food voice? If you have been a chronic dieter, or, you know, you've got, um, chronic eating issues. How do you make peace with food and get back to some level of normalcy? I think it's really important to start to really look at how long you've dieted. How long have you tried? And for many people, they're going to say for 10, 20, 30 years, like you just described. And, you know, is that long enough? Is that enough data to know that it's not going to work? And, you know, really recognizing that you're not the one that needs to be fixed. Like we really need to fix our culture and how it looks at bodies and it values certain bodies. Like you said, like the young, thin bodies are the most like held up and we can change that. But really trying to flip the script is like, whenever you hear yourself saying like, I need to fix myself instead of like, we need to fix this world together. And we're only going to be able to do it together. Yeah, that's a great point too. And if you're listening, wondering, so how do I eat? So mm-hmm. what I work with, with my clients is either intuitive eating or mindful eating, which are, they have some overlap, but this is this um, idea that you can listen to your body, that your body is wise. You know, if you mm-hmm. ate when you're hungry, you stop when you're full, you learn how to deal with difficult emotions. I also teach self-compassion, teaching people what's a productive way. Do I really need right now? I think that's the other piece of the coin too, is that mm-hmm other side that, you know, we've been taught that when we're experiencing difficult emotions, food is what we reach for. And so, you know, how do I deal with my emotions in a more productive way? How do I give myself what I really need? But you can learn intuitive eating. It's like, you think about a baby, right? They scream when they're hungry and they stop when they're full. They know from the moment that they're born, how much food they need. And your body is very wise. It wants homeostasis. So there are some great 
nutritionists out there, great techniques like intuitive eating, like mindful eating that can really help you get back on track. But I think you've also got to get weight loss off the table and just yes. focusing on, you know, weight loss. If you want it as an outcome, that's fine, but it's not a goal and focus more on lifestyle change, taking care of your body, learning to eat intuitively. So let's take, switch gears a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about PCOS because I don't actually know all that much about it. So for people who aren't aware of it, what exactly is PCOS? PCOS is an endocrine disorder that starts in the brain and because it affects hormones, it results in a set of symptoms. Um, people with ovaries get PCOS, uh, and it's something that's lifelong. Unfortunately, because it's connected to ovaries, there's this misinterpretation that you only can have it when you are in childbearing years, but in reality, it stays even past menopause. And that I think it's really important to know uh, with PCOS, it is something that lasts past menopause. And that's when around menopause with PCOS is when a lot of the metabolic kind of sides of PCOS with the high insulin and blood pressure, things like that start to be really, um, causing more symptoms and where many people start to really want to diet to control the changes that happen. And, um, forgetting or not, maybe not even knowing that they still are living with PCOS at that point. And, um, you know, a lot of things that you're talking about, I think can be really, really important for someone with PCOS who is in midlife for that reason. Yeah. And I think that a lot of the symptoms are similar. So you might have irregular periods, mm -hmm. you know, the weight issues, those kinds of things. So I think people can sign it, kind of mix them up. How is PCOS diagnosed? There's a Rotterdam criteria that people need to meet two out of the three. And right now you can only be diagnosed if you do menstruate. So if someone has already gone through menopause, technically at this point, you can't be diagnosed with PCOS, but I can talk to someone and find out just a little bit of data about their menstrual history to know that they probably did have PCOS. Eventually they'll have like some kind of like lab value that they can get. But right now it's, it's having irregular absent periods along with signs of high androgen and then cysts on the ovary. So having two out of the three of those um, allows for the diagnosis. So that's interesting. If you're listening, you know, you, you can have it at midlife. You can have it after you've stopped oh, yeah. menstruating, even though it can't get diagnosis. Mm -hmm. It stays throughout the lifespan. So I know you've got some different ways of addressing it. What are some of the uh, techniques you use? What are the, mm -hmm. some of the recommendations if somebody has PCOS that you advise them to follow? Yeah. So you mentioned intuitive eating. I am someone who's been using intuitive eating with myself and clients for 20 years and working with PCOS. People often thought they couldn't do intuitive eating because they had to diet. And I'm like, nope, you can do intuitive eating or any anti-diet mindful eating type of um, tool that you want with, with PCOS. And it's really learning a lot of the same things we talked about, making sure you're eating enough. And there's some supplements, there's some interventions with sleep and um, self-care that help to bring down insulin and inflammation levels that are um, a big concern with PCOS. And then once that happens, a lot of the intuitive eating skills are the same that they would be for with people without PCOS. And um, along the way, it's really learning to advocate for yourself because um, I have a feeling this happens with a lot of different issues with uh, midlife, but um, with PCOS, a lot of times their healthcare providers don't really have the insight they, they, they need to help someone. And so the person has to, to advocate for themselves. So it's learning some things with that too. It's so interesting too, because when I was in dietetic school, we didn't study any of this. Like allergies no, weren't a thing. Not. PCOS wasn't a thing. Eating <laughs> disorders weren't a thing. No, and no. we're having all of this. So after the break, I want to talk a little bit about sort of what's happened that these 
types of issues have come up. And I want to let people know if you want to join the conversation, you can uh, call us at 866-472-5788. That's 866-472-5788. If you have a question for Julie or myself around weight, dieting, PCOS, midlife, we would love to have you on and support you. So I appreciate you listening. I hope this has been great food for thought. We will be back after the break more with Julie Dillon, who is the amazing voice of Find Your Food Voice. Talk to you on the other side. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Midlife can be challenging. You may be sandwiched between growing kids and aging parents, dealing with menopause and trying to find work-life balance. Or maybe your life looks good on the outside, but inside you're feeling stressed and overwhelmed and wondering how to get your confidence and joy back. You need someone to help you get real, discover who you are, and navigate life. Hi, I'm Dr. Ellen, the Midlife Whisperer, and I'm here to help. I've worked with hundreds of midlife women, went from surviving to thriving at midlife myself, and literally wrote the book on this pivotal time period, Rock Your Midlife, Seven Steps to Transform Yourself and Make Your Next Chapter Your Best Chapter. Think of me as the one-stop shop for all your midlife needs. I'm a psychologist, nutritionist, and board-certified health and wellness coach with 30 years of experience empowering midlife women. I provide nutrition consults, life coaching, and free resources to help you transform your body, your mind, your career, and your relationships. Feeling stuck? I can help you figure out how to live authentically with joy, passion, and purpose. Every Wednesday here on Voice America, live from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I share my passion for making the most of midlife and my expertise on the most pressing midlife issues from changing family relationships, managing stress, and securing enough resources to rediscovering yourself. I also interview experts from around the world to help you navigate your life. For more information, please visit my website, themidlifewhisperer.com, for fabulous resources, including my free gift, 10 Tips to Rock Your Midlife. That's themidlifewhisperer.com. Hope to see you there soon. Follow the Voice America Variety Channel on Twitter. Our hosts always have something to say, and we know that you do too. We tweet on today's hot topics, and you're welcome to follow us. Speak up and join in at Voice AM Variety. That's at Voice AM Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Rock Your Midlife with Dr. Ellen, the Midlife Whisperer. Have a question for Dr. Ellen or her guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5788. That's 866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Here again is Dr. Ellen, the Midlife Whisperer. 
Hey, welcome back. I am so delighted that you are here. I hope you are having as much fun as I am learning some new things. Want to let you know if you want to get in touch with me, if you have a show topic that you'd like me to cover, if you'd like my free gift, 10 tips to rock your midlife, check out my website. It's themidlifewhisperer.com. That's themidlifewhisperer.com. And I have been talking to the beautiful and amazing Julie Dillon, who is just such an incredible voice in the whole anti-diet movement where we're you know trying to wake people up and clue people in if you have been on diets whether you've been on one whether you've been on i think i was reading something like that a lot of people go on thousands in their lifetime looking desperately for a magic bullet solution i'll hear to say there are no magic bullet solutions mm-hmm. and there is nothing wrong with you and your body wants to just keep you alive and be where it is so we're going to talk a little bit more about dieting and about pcos but first i want to ask julie about her experience on a reality tv show <laughs> You, you slipped that into the questions you sent me. So what were you on and what was it like? It wasn't the it's biggest always, loser. So no, it wasn't the biggest loser. No. Um, it's always an interesting thing to talk about because uh, I'm almost 47 and it was a number of years ago, but I was in my forties already. And how often can someone in their forties who's graying with a mom of two kids be on a reality show? I mean, uh, we don't have very many chances uh, that, you know, these days, but that's this reality show happened to be, be taped in my little small Southern town that I live in. And it's my big, fat, fabulous life. Uh, Whitney Thor is the person who's like the main um, character. I don't know what else to call it. She's, she's a real person. So she's not a character, but she has uh, PCOS and has also um, been really frank about her struggles with eating disorders. And that was like always my intersection that I worked the most with, with people. And so I got a chance to um, be on two episodes of season two of my big fat fabulous life. And it was really um, an interesting experience um, having a one-on-one session with a client that had three other people in the room like <laughs> with like the sound and the the mics and stuff like that. But it, um, it was really interesting. Whitney's amazing. She's really sweet, just like she is on the show. And it, um, you know, it opened a lot of really cool doors for me that I never would have been able to, to, experience because of it. Um, but also, you know, it was really draining. It was a lot of work. It's so much more work than it looks like. Um, I think we were recorded maybe 16 hours for those two little bites that you see. So, um, it's a lot more work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, TV is challenging. I have to say, I, I think yeah. I prefer radio with TV. TV is a lot Same. of work. So, yeah, and just all the, the hair, the makeup, everything that you need to do. So mm-hmm. we'll talk a little bit more about PCOS. You had just mentioned Whitney. Why do so many people with PCOS experience eating disorders? Oh, well, because people with PCOS are told that they have to diet. And the more you diet, the more likely you're going to experience an eating disorder. And I think it's almost 70% of people with PCOS are, um, have at least one criteria of binge eating disorder and almost 40% meet the full criteria for binge eating disorder. And, you know, part of living with PCOS are these high um, insulin levels that make a person like crave a carbohydrates, even if they've just eaten. And it's because the body is not able to like really use food for energy in the way it needs. And the way that people are told to do then is just to not eat carbs, which is torture, you know, every cell of the body is like screaming to like eat carbohydrates because we need glucose to our brain in order to be like a functioning human. And, um, so people just try harder and harder and harder and weight doesn't go down because of these high insulin levels and weight gain is really the norm. I mean, that's something that Whitney talked about. I think she said between 50 and hundred pounds she gained in her freshman year of college. 
<clears throat> even though she was restricting. And that is really the norm with PCOS, unfortunately. And um, even researchers that have looked into all the different diets with PCOS say, oh, we don't have a diet that helps people with PCOS. So then it says, just pick one, which is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> That's what some evidence-based guidelines said in 2018. Wow. We have no diets to help and they actually may be harmful. So just pick one. And I think it's really important to just highlight how much anti-fat bias is even in research that it can't even let go of the idea of like, well, maybe we should just stop telling people to diet and help people to find things that actually help them feel better and look for things that actually don't harm people. Cause like, like we've talked about diets can be super harmful in many different ways. Yeah. yeah a lot of people not may not realize that dieting mm -hmm. really predisposes people to eating disorders and eating disorders yes. have the highest rate of mortality for any mental illness. People die mm -hmm. from eating disorders. And it's, you know, mm -hmm. as someone who had an eating disorder for years, it sucks. Mm -hmm. They it really, there, there are no fun. You focus so much time and energy, so much wasted human potential. So, um, so I guess as a last question, what can we do individually and collectively to sort of mm -hmm. end this whole diet culture? I know that's a dream. And I loved your latest <laughs> podcast where you were like, and I think this is so important as we're, you know, looking at post-COVID and what's going on in Ukraine that we're like, each of us has to imagine a better world. And that's a big motivation for me, thinking about all the areas in my life um, that I want to contribute to and how I want the world to be different. So I know this is mm -hmm. like your, this is your baby and you, have, <laughs> you envision a world where people don't have eating disorders and there are no diets. So what, what can we all do to fuel this vision? You know, I, it's really important for us to recognize that we are all connected. We are all connected, even when it comes to dieting. And if you, the listener can move away from dieting, it'll help the world be better because if you move away from dieting and you move to a place of acceptance of your body, you're going to treat other people around you in higher weight bodies better. And they are going to experience less oppression, which helps them and their families. Like it, and it really, we are all connected in that way. And that is how powerful dieting is. It does end up harming people because of how then we have these beliefs about um, the human body and how we look and how that is really keeps people from accessing just simple things like safety and healthcare. So if you can, you know, take the tips, tips from Dr. Ellen here and like really find a way to say goodbye to diets and figure out for you what you need to feel good. And that will, that'll cause this ripple effect where we can all change diet culture and really finally get rid of it. And one thing I love to tell people to do um, is follow people on social media. If you follow social media, like I love Instagram, but follow people who look different than you yes, follow people yes. who are, you know, different races, different sizes, different ages, and see the beauty in everyone. I think if we all saw the divinity in everyone, including ourselves, the world would be a very different place. So mm -hmm. support people. There's so many cool people out there doing beautiful things like you. So, and also I would say too, if you are struggling with PCOS, contact Julie, if you are struggling with an eating disorder or disordered eating, and you don't know what to do about your lifestyle, wherever you're at, get some help. Go to a qualified professional, someone who is skilled in anti-diet modalities and intuitive eating, reach out. They should be willing to have a really frank conversation with you about how they can help you and really listen to you compassionately. If someone is judging you, putting you on some cockamamie diet, move in the opposite direction. So Julie, where can people hear you and reach out to you if they want? I know you've got a course for PCOS. You've got that great podcast. Tell us where we can find you. 
the easiest place is at julieduffydillon.com. My podcast, if you like podcasts, is Find Your Food Voice. So I would love for you to take a listen over there. All right. Awesome. Julie, thank you so much for thank being with you. us. It's julieduffydillon.com. I'll put that in the show notes. And I am looking forward to supporting you in your endeavor and continue the conversation. Thanks, Dr. Ellen. Take care. Take care. All right, so we're gonna switch gears a little bit. And so I'm gonna ask Tim Bilberry to switch on his camera so you can see Tim here. He is joining me and we're gonna talk a little bit about your heart. Your heart, if you don't realize it, is an absolutely incredible organ. It beats 115,000 times a day and pumps about 2,000 gallons of blood every single day. I learned so much about heart disease a couple of years ago. I was a keynote for the Go Red Luncheon, which is part of the American Heart Association. One thing I realized is that it is a leading killer of men and women over 50. One person dies every 36 seconds in the United States from cardiovascular disease. And that was almost the fate of one of my clients, Tracy. She is a nurse. She's very well educated. She's in good shape. She eats right. She takes good care of her health. But in her mid fifties, she started experiencing shortness of breath. She was tired a lot. And on her, the day of her son's 26th birthday, she was in the shower and she passed out. And she didn't think much of it. She went downstairs, she told her son, and he insisted that she actually go to the ER and get checked out. And she was on the gurney getting an EKG. And it was at that moment that she realized that she was having a heart attack. And thank God she took care of herself because if she hadn't, she actually would have died. She didn't even realize it. And so heart disease really can show up very differently for men. I'm sorry, for women than it does for men. We sure think about, you know, when you see a television show and some man is like, grabs his heart and is like, oh my God, I'm having a heart attack. It can often be an electrical problem. It shows up in different ways. It goes undiagnosed. So it's so important to educate yourself, which is why I'm so excited to talk to our next guest. And he's going to share what he is doing to support people with heart disease. His name is Tim Bell and he is an experienced manager of inpatient and outpatient cardiac rehab programs. He's been doing this work for over 15 years, and he has developed an award-winning home-based system proven to reduce hospital readmissions in cardiac patients. So one of my first jobs was working in cardiac care and people had to come to the hospital, but you've developed an amazing new tool that people can use right in the comfort of your home, their homes. I'm so excited to have you on the show, Tim. Welcome. Yeah. Thank you very much, Dr. Allen. Thank you for having me today on your show. So we already, you're very welcome. And we already talked a little bit about uh, heart disease being the leading cause of death for people over 50 in the United States, but what's the most highly prescribed activity for heart disease patients? Well, primarily when you come uh, after experiencing an event, usually you're getting put, you're usually put on a, a set of, you know, a whole new set of ex, uh, uh, medications. And then you're also primarily you're prescribed a, usually a home walking program, trying to increase the activity. And if possible, uh, you get referred into an outpatient cardiac rehab program uh, by your cardiologist or your primary care physician. So cardiac rehab, it's a lot. If you think about, you know, if you've had a hip, hip replacement, knee replacement, I think people are probably better with their physical therapists than right. cardiac rehab. People are probably like, well, I got through it and now I'm going to go on with my life. That was something I realized when I worked with people, they often didn't want to do the same rehab. So what's the, um, the compliance rate for cardiac rehab programs? 
The compliance rate for an outpatient cardiac, traditional outpatient cardiac rehab program is usually about 20%, plus or minus 5%, depending on what, uh, if you live in an urban versus rural setting, you know, depending on your age, if you are still, you know, for example, if you still work, because there are, there, there's a lot of limitations that I would say that, that, that would involve a person not to participate in cardiac rehab. And one of those, the primarily, the one that I've seen, especially whenever, you know, my time uh, professional career working in an, a traditional brick and mortar hospital based, you know, outpatient clinic, uh, cardiac rehab program, it was geography um, was the number one reason because there's, there's so few of these cardiac rehab programs um, around the country. And it's usually, it's usually, their, their locations are usually set up in uh, like an urban, like a city, you know, suburbs area, but especially to where uh, when it comes to the, the rural health, rural communities, and especially once, you know, especially with when the COVID outbreak started, that, that really kind of changed a lot of the way that these facilities are able to, to operate. You know, it, it closed down a lot of programs um, to, like I said, from, from COVID, the, the, social distancing guidelines, participating in an actual group setting inside an enclosed space. You know, there were already challenges ahead of that, but especially when the COVID outbreak came in, you know, there was, there was a, a large gap, not only was already there, but it, it made it even worse for the patients uh, having more difficult time being able to participate in one of these types of programs. So that's amazing. I didn't realize it was so low, like one in only one in five people who have had a cardiac incident, have had, you know, perhaps they've had a stent put in to open up the veins in their heart, or they've had open heart surgery, only one in five actually participates in cardiac rehab? Yes, ma'am. And uh, previously, Sorry, I'm muted. Uh, okay. Previously, yeah, previously before uh, uh, starting Recovery Plus USA, I worked at a very prominent hospital uh, system in, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and we had over, goodness gracious, almost 3,600 referrals into our cardiac rehab program every year, and just above 600 of those over my time, over over you know almost six seven years in in that facility. You know, we're only being able to capture, you know, just above, you know, 600 of those patients. And most of those, you know, would go back home to areas where cardiac rehab programs were not available or they had to return back to work because, you know, you know, so a lot of what the patients would normally tell us is, is, hey, I got to go back to work, you know, you know, whether it's coming from a stent, heart attack, open heart surgery, you know, short term disability, however, however that affected them, you know, understanding when the patients are discharged out of the hospital, you know, they, 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 they need to return to their everyday life. They need to basically pick up where they left off because when you're especially looking at it from a, a, for example, like a heart surgery or heart attack standpoint, you know, you will go, you know, if you woke up that morning, you know, you started your normal routine, just if you, just as you've done for decades. And then all of a sudden, just like what, with what you're explaining with your friend, you started experiencing chest pains, you passed out in the shower. You know, that's a real quick sudden event. That's something that you hadn't prepared for. But now it's, you go in, you have your procedures, you have, whether it's a stent place, you know, PCI, God forbid, open heart surgery, you get discharged, but you got to go right back. You know, you're, you go home and you got to, you got to kind of pick up right where your, your life, where you had just left off. 
Yeah, it's so different than when I think about, you know, people think about cancer and it's sort of like people seem to be able to sort of stop their life and they're going through this lengthy process sort of fighting for their life when we think about cancers. But with heart disease, like you said, it's it's a very... Um, it just, boom, it just happens. And then you're expected to just go back to, you know, you, you have your procedure and then you go back to your life. Like, you know, you have a knee hip operation, you go back to your life, but people really do need the rehab. Why do people need cardiac rehab if they have had some type of procedure to repair their heart? It's, you know, it, it's the, the, the biggest piece and component, not only is it the exercise piece, which you know, most of your cardiac rehab programs, it's, you know, and in, in it's we always use kind of the the metaphor whenever you you know if you if you're able to see your heart especially once you've had a heart attack it looks like there's an actual you know it looks like an actual bruise your heart looks like it's bruised because that's where the damage that's because you have a uh, a cutoff of circulation depending on the side of where the blockage is and so depending on how severe the you know the heart attack was would determine you know it's again you know your heart you, your heart is, is is your pump. It's what supplies, you know, blood flow to your body. And that's what allows you to be able to do certain activities, certain exercises, you know, depending on what your, uh, depending on what your job is, that's, you know, exercise has always been the biggest component. It's, you know, it's cardiac rehab, it's physical therapy for your heart. And so being able to provide that exercise helps get your heart working again more efficiently also, too, knowing if you experience a cardiac procedure, stent, open heart surgery, I mean, you have an actual medical procedure that you have, you know, that, you know, you recover from. And again, it's just, it's, it's, it's these new medications, it's the exercise, it's the, it's the diet, you know, going into the, you know, the, like, uh, for example, that you talked about earlier, you know, going into the, you know, not the one size fits all approach, but you go into more of like your cardiac diets you know, low fat, low cholesterol, things like that on top of all this new information, all this lifestyle change and all these, you need to, you need to start exercising and eating right. And here's all these new medications. But what happens is, is that's a lot of information, especially on a, on a skilled clinician, you know, it's, that's an educational piece that's usually put on the patient all at once. And so where cardiac rehab home-based or traditional comes into play is they're, they're, they're like your coach. Right. They help walk you through, you know, what's going on, what's the best mode of recovery, help get you back in shape and doing it in a, in a very safe, uh, professional manner. Yeah, I can imagine. I, mean, I remember I would visit with people post um, cardiac surgery or having stents and they were just so relieved that they were alive. And, they, and sometimes people just don't even, I work a lot with people with sort of underlying beliefs. People don't want to deal sometimes because they don't want to think about what almost happened to them. So it is, it is a sticky thing to get people slowly mm-hmm. working on preserving their hearts. So you've um, developed something truly amazing. You've developed a program that works remotely. Tell me a little bit about the program. But first, I'd love to hear a little bit about the, the idea. Like, I love hearing people when you had this sort of idea, like, let's create some type of virtual platform that can facilitate the cardiac rehab process. When did you come up with the idea? And how did you come up with the idea? Yeah, this, this, this program, I say, was an accumulation of my of goodness, ever since I was probably in, in, in high school, you know, driving your grandparents to this, you know, especially my grandfather, he would experience, you know, a heart attack and he would get referred into cardiac rehab. And it's always that nightmare phone call that you get, hey, you know, you need to come to the hospital. Grand, your grandpa's had a heart attack. You know, we, you know, we, all, you know, all the family comes in. It's a very high stressful situation. 
And so it all started with, with back when I was in high school and then going into college and being exposed to this, especially on, you know, on my side of the family, we, heart disease is very prevalent on my side of the family. So that was one of those, just having that experience, especially when you're in that mode of, oh, I wonder what I want to do with the rest of my life. You know, seeing how it helped my family members um, get through that and then going into college. I'm an exercise physiologist by trade. You know, that is what I that's, you know, ever since I graduated from college, that's what I was. And I went straight into cardiac rehab, you know, the the facility based, you know, the brick and mortar, you know, traditional cardiac rehab. And it was it's it's very rewarding. And any patient that's out there that's recovering from a heart procedure and a cardiac procedure, you know, that is that is one of those, you know, you know, finding finding that program that can help you. But the biggest issue that it was is, again, going on the inpatient and outpatient side, that was always the biggest gap that I had found was, you know, if you have a patient, you know, they got to go back to work or depending on what kind of insurance you had, it would determine, you know, are you eligible for cardiac rehab versus not eligible for cardiac rehab? And being part of my, you know, part of my job and my duties is to, is, is to help these patients when they're discharged from the hospital get placed in referred into an actual cardiac rehab program. But it was very difficult because it's, it's, it's patient location. It's what kind of insurance they have, you know, because, you know, is there, you know, a $50 copay, $100 copay, or there's, I live in a, I live in a rural area and there's no cardiac rehab available. So there's no place for us to, to, to send that referral. So what we, what I, what I did was it's back around 2000, 2018. um, I had this idea and it's actually my uh, grad school capstone project. I was a little bit, I was in my thirties when I went back and I got my uh, MBA and this was actually my capstone project to where what I did was I created a, when you break cardiac rehab down into an actual, into an actual formula, you have your exercise, diet, medication adherence, um, stress management, smoking cessation, uh, you know, things like that. So whenever I created this program, I put all those pieces together and then utilizing the current uh, uh, CPT codes, telemedicine was just starting to show up on the, right. on the map, you know, teledoc was starting to show up and we were able to piece those components together to actually create a, you know, an insurance reimbursable model that we, you know, piloted and initially started with an advanced heart failure uh, practice out of Dallas. And again, the readmission rates and, you know, the access and care, it, instead of 20, 20% of a patient being able to participate in this program, we were north of 89 to 90% of patients participating because they actually had the ability to, regardless of where they lived or what their insurance status was. Well, that's amazing because you are actually recovery plus is actually coming to people's homes. So it's making a huge difference. So we are almost out of time, Tim. I appreciate you being here. I want to let people know too, that your program recovery plus dot health rehab is available for through mm -hmm. insurance. Most insurance is covered. So for both people listening who are maybe experiencing needing cardiac rehab, and also if your parents are, I know a lot of mm -hmm. us have elderly parents, so it's a great thing to have at midlife. Tim, thank you so much for joining and for the amazing platform that you have created. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Ellen. Thank you for having me on your show.
You're welcome. And thank you all for listening. I hope that you have gotten value. I so appreciate you being here today. If you need some help, please check out my website. It is themidlifewhisperer.com. I have a free gift for you there. You can also grab my book, Rock Your Midlife. I promise you that will really help you make your next chapter your best chapter. Thanks again for listening. And I will see you next week. Thanks for listening to Rock Your Midlife. We hope this episode has helped you get real, discover who you are, and get the tools to navigate your life. Until we talk again, have a fantastic week and go rock your midlife.